0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and his mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was, he was the, with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of the Lord. But Elamus, the magician, for this is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But, Paul, who was, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord?" And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise Praise be to Christ. Christ.
1: Thanks, Rachel, uh, for the second time. And... um, Good timing to have Rachel read for us. Rachel's actually uh, one of the founders of an organization called She Reads Truth, and there's also a He Reads Truth, uh, and they have graciously offered a gift to anybody who wants it. Uh, there's a She version of their Acts study, which we're, we're going through the book of Acts right now, and also a He version, which will be available for anybody who wants them. It's first come, first serve. Um, don't trample on each other after the service, but, but uh, right there next to the welcome desk Uh, outside, there'll be a table where uh, also our new Old Hickory Boulevard Congregational Director, who you just uh, saw up here, uh, Jennifer Wenge, will be uh, passing out those books. And also, there's another book uh, that's going to be up there for free uh, called Where Prayer Becomes Real. It's written by a friend of mine named Kyle Strobel, who's out in California. He teaches at, at Biola University. And this is one of the better books if you want like a how-to, uh, if, if you're struggling to figure out like how do I cultivate a life of prayer, uh, this is an excellent book. It's, one, it's probably one of my top two or three uh, that I've ever read on that subject and so so highly recommend uh, you grab that for free. There are no strings attached. Nothing's going to be asked of you. They're just there for the taking for free. So, um, so all that being said, uh, I am going to now um, uh, quote C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite writers, uh, who highlights the first two practices of what we call the CPC or Christ Presbyterian Church pathway to formation into solid, steady, consistent discipleship. He says this. See if you can catch those two uh, uh, pathway practices, Christ Pres folks. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, Daily prayers and religious reading and church going are necessary parts of the Christian life. We we have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other belief will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. So, so our first two pathway practices, and these are things that we, we encourage everybody to engage in consistently, Uh, One is, actually the second pathway practice is to be fully present with Jesus Christ every single day uh, through active, regular Bible reading and and a life of prayer. And the first pathway practice is what we're going to talk about from the book of Acts today, and that is to be fully present with your local church every single Sunday. Now, um, how do we describe what Sunday is supposed to be for the Church of Jesus Christ. There are a couple of words that came to mind as I was preparing. One is it's, it's sort of like a homecoming, right? So those of you who went to school or still go to school, every year there's this, this huge sort of gathering where, where everybody that's involved with, with the school uh, or the family reunion, they, they come together all together once a year. Another one is a holiday, right? So every year, You gather for Christmas, you gather for Easter, you gather for the different holidays. And what you could call Sunday worship is a sort of holiday, except it's every week. It's a holy day, a holiday. day. And so what I want to do today is engage a little bit with the Bible's teaching uh, that talks about belonging and how belonging uh, is, is central to what it means to follow Christ well and in a way that will help you and help all of us to flourish. First, we belong to him. The Bible tells us that Jesus presents himself to us as our elder brother. He's got our back. He's always looking out for us. He's the one that, whose lead we follow, our elder brother. It also says that Jesus is the bridegroom to his people, the church. And uh, so elder brother, bridegroom, these are family uh, sort of words to describe the kind of relationship that Christ has called us into with Himself. But there's also a one-anothering dynamic that the Bible talks about. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says this, and this is directed especially at those who uh, are thinking about piecing out on church life and kind of doing their, their God life on their own, sort of curate their own individual path with God. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Now, I don't know anybody here who has lost a hand or an eyeball, but if you lose a hand or an eyeball, the whole body has to adjust, and the whole body has to suffer on some level in the absence of that one part. And so so the Apostle Paul in in 1 Corinthians uses the body metaphor to to emphasize how important staying together is. Okay, and so for the next few minutes, what I want to do is to lean in uh, with the why. Uh, uh, You know, some of you have read Simon Sinek's book about, you know, the why, Right? the why of church, the why specifically of the fourth promise that everybody who joins this church makes, to support the church and its worship and its work to the best of your ability, right? And we all say, I do, to that, okay? So here's the, here's the good thing, and, I, and, and here's what I hope to convince you of, that the more you and I support the church, the more we find over time that the church supports us and, and, and holds us up and bolsters us us in the life that God has called us to live and the flourishing into which God invites us. Okay, so here are four things that we can notice about the church, the bride of Christ, this family that we're all part of because of our shared connection to Christ. Four things. One, church is where we get formed and reformed as the people of God. Two, it's where we support each other in our faith. Three, it's where we learn real love. And then finally, it's where we send out people that we love. Okay, so let's start here. It is where we get formed and reformed as the people of God. So there's another part of the Bible where it talks about how God is our creator, and, and, and a metaphor is used to describe that. He is a potter, and we are the clay. And it is the potter's hands that form the clay. It is not the clay that, that forms the hands. It, it's, it's the hands of the potter that forms the clay. And, and what that is referring to largely is the teaching that we get from Scripture and that we talk about and lean into and press into here so that it leans into and presses into us. You know, like Pastor Filson likes to say oftentimes, you know, Get in the Bible so the Bible will get into you. Because the more that, that, that the words of God, the life of God, the story of God gets into us, the more we become like that, that clay that, that God the potter is shaping. A negative way to put it is this. The church, life in the local church, especially as we center ourselves around the truth of Christ, is a safeguard against false teaching. That's a phrase from the Bible Verse 6 here, it says, as they were traveling and preaching Jesus in the synagogues, Paul and Barnabas encountered a false teacher or a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He opposed Paul and Barnabas and sought to turn the proconsul, and the proconsul was a powerful person, he was the governor. And so this man, this false prophet, sought to turn the proconsul or the governor away from the faith. So a couple of phrases here. The faith. There's a definite article here suggesting that there is one faith. There is one pathway that is sanctioned by Jesus Christ himself. There is one way of knowing God that has been sanctioned and offered and held out to us by God himself. Remember, he's the potter, we're the clay. We don't make him, he makes us. And so the faith, this definite article, uh, means that there is one true path that that, that we're being called into, and every other path that is contrary to that path or contradicts that path or pushes back on that path, it's it's defined pretty directly as as being false by definition. So there's a, a pastor, theologian, philosopher named Francis Schaeffer, and a lot of a lot of the pastors at this church and others uh, have been very influenced by this man named Francis Schaeffer and his wife, Edith, and this whole movement that they started called Labri. And uh, Francis Schaeffer um, wrote this book called The God Who Is There. And in that book, Schaeffer uh, talks about the uh, concept of thesis and antithesis. And he gets philosophical uh, and he says, essentially that thesis and antithesis are, are always contradictory to one another, right? And if the thesis is the truth, then the antithesis, or that which confronts or stands against the truth, can't be true. You, they can't be both true at the same time. And what Schaefer's getting at is, you can't have your truth and me have my truth, and if, if, if they're contradictory to one another, either one or both of them are actually not true, Either one or both of them are actually false because you, you can't have two contradicting truths and both of them be, be true, okay? So hopefully you're following me on that. And, 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 uh, and, and, but, but I think simply put, to, to, to really put it simply, what Schaeffer is saying is this, that there is such thing as false ideas. And false ideas are destructive ideas. And so one of the most important things things that a church can be about is is aligning our thoughts, our beliefs, our lives around the thesis, which is not just a thesis. It's truth. And, you know, it it even says about itself, "We, we demolish strongholds against anything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So that's Schaeffer's thesis antithesis argument out there. I think you, you understand it because you're very smart, intelligent people. But the other, the other small phrase I want to pay attention to is, is the way that this guy names himself, Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus. And Remember, this is the guy that's trying to convince everybody not to listen to the message of Jesus from the apostles Paul and Barnabas. And yet he's identifying himself with Jesus by calling himself son of Jesus. He, he gives him a title that, that actually is not supported by his reality. One way you could put it is, he's trying to make Jesus part of his personal brand. You can assume in some way, shape, or form that the name Jesus opened a door for this guy, especially for the proconsul, because it looks like the proconsul, the governor, the man with the power, the man with the political cachet, has some interest and intrigue around the person of Jesus. I mean, you can tell by the way that at the end of this passage, he's actually converted to true Christianity. And, 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 and so this man, perhaps, in order to open doors with, with this man of power makes the name Jesus part of his brand. So, so back where I used to live before we came to Nashville, New York City, this wouldn't have worked. Like, like if you make Jesus Christ part of your brand, it actually, it, in more ways, closes doors than it does open doors in, in, a, in a coastal, you know, very secular city like the one we came from. And it's not the only one of its kind. But if you go to Nashville and make the name Jesus part of your brand. Well, there's a, there's a church on every corner. And so, of course, identifying myself with the name of Jesus, whether I follow him or not, identifying myself with the name of Jesus in a city like Nashville can be beneficial professionally, financially, socially. If I want to get my kids into certain schools in Nashville, not necessarily because they're Christian schools, because I like their football program, or because I like the way they do the arts, or because their kids get into you know, good universities or score really well on SAT scores, but I've got to make Jesus part of my brand in order to come to the table for admission. You understand what I'm saying? Am I getting a little too close with some? Maybe. But this guy named himself Jesus. I am Bar Jesus. Jesus is part of my brand because he wanted political access. To which the Apostle Paul says, for whatever reason, if you're using the name of Jesus for any ulterior motive, if you're using Christianity for an ulterior motive, you're missing the entire point, and and it's actually a very serious thing. It's a very serious thing. You know, Paul says to this man, "You're, you're not a son of Jesus. You're not bar Jesus. You're bar Satan. He says, you're a son of the devil, You're an enemy of righteousness. You're full of deceit and villainy. You're crooked. And what what Paul is confronting here is this. Don't dare use Jesus Christ as a means to an end because the only thing that Jesus came to be is the end in himself. Your chief end is to glorify him, to enjoy him forever. He is not a means He is the end in himself. The aim of Christian discipleship is to be bent back into shape. You you, you might say that that every human being on on some level limps along with with what you could call a scoliosis of the soul. We're we're, we're bent. and, And we need the saving health of this God, of this potter, to straighten us back out, but what what Paul says when he uses the word "crooked" to talk about this man who's branding himself with the name of Jesus while not following Jesus, and actually while trying to detract people away from following the actual Jesus, but 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 makes Jesus part of his brand, he uses the word. Paul uses the word "crooked," and so so he says, "You need to be made straight." But what you're trying to do is is to take, you know, the the Take God and, and, and make him crooked. But it works the other way around. You know, Voltaire put it this way. He said, in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and ever since, man has been trying to return the favor. And that's what's going on right here. You know, this is part of why I appreciate being a Presbyterian, Right? And do Presbyterians have problems? Absolutely not. We are the, a perfect bunch. We, we have, look guys, we have more splits. We have more splits in our history than banana splits. I mean, we truly, like, if you look at the Presbyterian family tree, like, like, the ideal denomination will never split. There'll only be, like, one entity on the family tree. There's, like, a jillion entities on the, there, there's been so many splits and splinters over the years. Okay, so we're not proud of that. Because here's the thing. It's about this thing that that Paul pointed out. He said knowledge, like lots of Bible knowledge without love puffs up. It makes you arrogant. And and when it puffs you up and makes you arrogant, you end up fighting about ideology and ideas and politics. And you, you bicker about things instead of realizing the whole goal of this whole thing is to love God and love each other and love the world. Like love is the... The end of this. And so if it leads to bickering and, and taking sides and trying to discredit each other like this Bar-Jesus guy is trying to do to Paul and Barnabas, we're missing the whole point, right? But what I love about our Presbyterian heritage is that we do have a very high view of the Bible. Very high view. So high that that, that all of the ministers in our denomination must learn the original Hebrew and the original Greek as the Bible was originally written so that we can you know, have our best chance of interpreting, and reading, and learning, and understanding it as 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 it was in, intended to be understood, so that we can communicate it that way, right? Like like this very very high view of Scripture. You know that involves theological rigor, precision, care, and and you know it flows out into singing songs that are rich and robust in, in their theology and doctrine and, and reading through liturgies together that are rich and robust and asking you to do things like read the Bible every day. Like, because we believe that, that this thing, like I said last week, this thing has power, you guys. This is the power of God. The gospel is. And, and the more it gets into us, the, the more of his grandeur, you know, that leads to things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, get into us. That's why when the Bible, when it talks about sound doctrine, which is opposed to the false teaching that he's confronting here, sound doctrine, the, the, the original Greek word for sound is healthy. The Bible says that God wants us to have healthy beliefs organized and oriented around his healthy truth. And and that will lead to healthy lives, healthy decision making, healthy relating, healthy things. But if we if there's a part of us that we that we leave crooked just because we decide not to apply the resource, it it hurts everyone, including and especially us. So some of you, you you were born with crooked teeth, and you were born early enough in your life where you didn't have to get those metal braces because they came up with this thing called the Invisalign. It's just like these, these things that, that that straighten your teeth out that you can put in and then take out of your mouth, and they're clear. It almost looks like you don't even have braces on. But here's the thing. If you can get Invisalign, you can pay you know, hundreds or thousands of dollars for them, but if you leave them on your shelf and don't put them in your mouth every single day, it's not going to help you. The same can be said about Life in the local church, if it stays on the shelf and it's just something you pull off the shelf every now and then when you're feeling it and when the Titans kick off isn't at noon and when the sun isn't shining outside, you know, and the the weather is bad or, you know, whatever it is, whatever the deterrent, you know, as long as my 19 deterrents on this particular Sunday aren't there, then I'll show up. You're going to stay crooked. Something in and about you is going to stay crooked if you don't make the things that God has said are essential, formative, regular daily and weekly things. Your regular daily and weekly things. It's where we get formed and reformed as the people of God. And so it's also where we support each other's faith. Um, One of the things that Patty and I have become is what you call solo stove evangelists. Who has a solo stove? Who wants a solo stove? Okay, so a lot more hands went up in the 830 service. There are, there are quite a few more people there this morning in the 830 as well, so, so unfair advantage. But the solo stove is like this amazing, really light fire pit that you can move anywhere you want. The technology is outstanding. The heat is, is pulsating. And, and the thing that's, that's most noticeable about it is that the wood burns forever, unless you've got an isolated piece of wood. Like if, it, if it's off to the side, away from the, the wood pile, it flames out hours before the others. But, but those pieces of wood that stick together, the heat is, is strong, and, and like a little piece of wood like this will burn for three hours, you guys. But it's all about contact. It's all about drafting off of you know, the heat, of the other coals around you. And so, so this passage talks about the church at Antioch. It doesn't talk about a bunch of individual Christians scattered throughout the city doing Jesus things through a screen on their own time, curated you know, to suit their own preferences and to suit their own wants and needs. Right? Like we want, a, we want a Christianity that submits to us and all of our preferences instead of a Christianity that we submit ourselves to. We want to form it instead of it having it form us. But the church, as it's presented in Scripture, happens in one space, all together, with bodies and voices and you know five senses and all the rest. You know we think it's a huge commitment for that to happen weekly. You go back to the second chapter of Acts; they did it daily. Every day, they all gathered in the center of that fire pit and drafted off of the heat of each other's faith. It's an embodied faith. You know, in the beginning, God created a material world. In Isaiah chapter 7, it was predicted, as we read about every Christmas, that, that there's a coming Messiah, and his name will be called Emmanuel, whose name means God with us. And then in John chapter 1, we see the fulfillment of that happening, where it says, in the beginning was, was the Word and the Word became flesh. Jesus became flesh. God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. You know, the New Testament Greek word for church is ekklesia, which means gathering. It means a coming together. There's another metaphor that describes the church, and that's the body of Christ, where all the parts are together. Could you imagine, like, somebody said, hey, can I borrow your left leg for a week Right, and you're like, okay, you know, you cut your left leg. Here's my left leg. How's your life going to be that week? Well, it's probably not going to be good after that week, too, because it's hard to put a leg back on, and it's hard to cure and heal heal up completely from that kind of absence and that kind of trauma. You know, Paul says this to the Thessalonian Christians, from whom he had been separated. He said, "We were torn away from you, brothers." family language, for a short time, in person we were torn away from you, but not in our hearts. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, but Satan hindered us. There's so much you can draw from this, but one of the main applications here is that any voluntary impulse to keep my distance from the rest of the body of Christ is not from God, that impulse is not from God. Paul's language here is not neutral, it's dramatic, it's emotive. Why is he dramatic and emotive about being together with the people of God? If you have spent the good part of your life understanding and experiencing the church as family, you understand the answer to that question. But if you see the church more as a consumer good, more as a club, more as sort of a tack-on, more as part of your personal brand, you won't understand where to go with that question. It won't make, even the question won't make sense, let alone the answer. I mean, I'll put it this way. I mean, the Super Bowl's tonight. How many of us prefer, I'm not asking for a show of hands, how many of us prefer to watch the Super Bowl alone? As opposed to how many of us want to do that with other at least one other person. I've been stood up twice at sports events. And I think there's something in there for like a parallel with local church life. I've been stood up twice for live sports events. Once was at a New York Yankees game, which, okay, it's the Yankees. I never bought a hat. Uh, You know, Cardinals for life. St. Louis Cardinals forever for me. Um, But, you know. Yankee Stadium, historic place, right? I'm there. I show up. Like this guy has tickets. He says, I'll meet you at the game. Here's your ticket. I go to the game. He's not there. I, I, it's third inning. I pick up my phone. I'm like, Where are you? He's like, Oh, man. Got, got this dinner invitation. Like, like, like this dinner invitation. Didn't even tell me he wasn't going to show up. Just didn't show up and went to dinner because of a dinner invitation. I was hurt. You chose that, you chose to stand me up after saying you'd be here. And, and, and then the other one was a, a, a University of North Carolina basketball game, which, which I always celebrate, right? And the guy wasn't there and I call him, I'm like, where are you, man? And he said, oh man, I'm so sorry. I had an emergency surgery today. I, you know, the, the, I'm still, the morphine's, you know, got, my, got me dizzy. I forgot to call you. I'm so sorry. I wasn't hurt. I was sad. Right? There are reasons why we, we experience absence from one another because th- that make us sad. Sickness, um, you know, some kind of tragedy happens that takes somebody out for a while. I mean, the, the list is long or things that make us sad, but there are also some things that eventually kind of hurt, right? They sometimes things eventually kind of hurt. Where it's a choice, and it's a regular choice, and and you see you see your friends, you see them at the social gatherings, and at the concerts, and at the sporting events, and and at work, and everywhere else, and they're getting you know with their three times vaccinated cells getting two feet away from it in, in any conversation that they have. And then you say, man, I haven't seen you in like two years in worship. Miss you, man. Oh, man, COVID. You know, it's just COVID, you know. Uh, like, no, come on, man. Come on. Like it, w- it was bad before COVID happened, by the way. It was like, I think the average American church attendance was like 1.7 times a month. It's just a lot of people running around with the Jesus brand. And I know there, there, there's so many who are like, gosh, I just couldn't wait to get back, missed the people, missed the connection, missed like being in that fire pit, you know, drafting off the heat of the other coals. You know, it is in our wiring to need each other, including when we don't feel it, including when the sermon is not memorable. And the songs are not memorable. And the connections I made, you know, with other people, not memorable. You know, Nathan Tasker, this was really brilliant. He, he said, he said uh, to me, he said, Scott, you know, it's like this. How many, how many meals have you eaten in your lifetime? And I thought, well, you know, a little bit over 50 years old, five times a day. Um, you know, did the math, right? A lot of meals, lot of meals over the course of my lifetime. How many of those meals in your lifetime were memorable? Oh gosh, 30 maybe? 30 memorable meals. What if those were the only meals that you ate in your 50 years? You wouldn't have gotten to 50, would you? It doesn't have to be memorable to be meaningful. Maybe that's why Isaiah felt like he had to say for others as well as for himself Remember, Isaiah was the guy who was called to be a preacher with a congregation that did nothing but reject him all of his life. And then he gets sawn into at the end. Like this is a really bad pastor gig for him. And he writes in the middle of his prophecy the word of God will never return empty. It will always accomplish that for which God sends it out. It's not about making things empty. Memorable. It's about making things meaningful and Christ centered and biblical. And sometimes the meaningful things, like the raw broccoli on your plate, completely forget. You want to forget about them, but those are the things that actually make you healthy and form you. And so, like, we're especially susceptible, you guys, in a city that revolves around a stage and revolves around entertainment where we judge the quality of something based on whether or not we're feeling it. And that's just a dumb way to judge the quality of something. Cocaine feels good, you guys. Feels really good for a moment. I, 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 I've heard. <laughs> Truly, like I've heard. Like I, I've, I've never used cocaine myself let the record show, but I have family members, two of them in particular, who have, and it almost killed them both. We're after meaning, not a buzz. We're after discipleship, not a Jesus brand. To open up doors, to get your kids into schools, and to get you ahead at work, and to get you invited to the parties. You feel like you have to be at to feel important. Man, being a nominal Christian in a Bible Belt town is so spiritually dangerous. I'll move on. Gosh, this is a long sermon. All right, I'm going to finish. I'm going to finish quick. It's where we learn real love. I'm, I'm just going to point out being in community with people who are just a lot different than you is so helpful for you and for them, so helpful. The names of the teachers in this church include all kinds of people. Uh, uh, shoot, where are they? Okay, one's a Jew, one's a Roman, one's, one's uh, Nigerian, one's a social elite, one's a former persecutor of the church. In the church at Antioch, Black people, white people, high and low levels of society, Jews and Greeks, educated people, uneducated people. So I read a tweet a couple days ago. This was brilliant. It was from a, from a Christian in another town. And, and he said, if you go to a church website, and one of the things you read on that website is, we're not your grandma's church, don't go there. It's not a good church. If it's not your grandma's church, it's not a good church. If, if you've put not your, you know, and fill in the blank, if there is somebody to put in that blank, missing it. I mean, the, the, the vast, broad welcome of God was so essential, so important to these guys, the three of them in Acts actually added, changed their names Jewish people adding Greek names to their names, Joseph Barsabbas, that's a Jewish and Greek name together. John Mark, the guy who wrote the second gospel, that's a Greek and a Jewish name put together. Saul of Tarsus, it was very important that he also be Paul, the apostle in certain context as the one called to be the ambassador of Christ to the Gentile and Greek world. And so we came up with this statement about our church and what we aspire to be, and I hope. Every year we succeed more and more at this than the last. This is from our vision statement. We will celebrate our diversity, opening our lives, hearts, and homes to sinners and saints, doubters and believers, seekers and skeptics, prodigals and Pharisees, Presbyterians and non Presbyterians, young and old, married and unmarried, leaders and followers, famous and infamous, our own and other ethnicities, nationalities, and cultures, happy and depressed, helpers and those who need help, creative and corporate conservative and liberal, affluent and bankrupt, addicted and sober, public and private, homeschooled, and others who enter our doors. We will expand our us by carefully listening to, learning from, and being shaped by one another's unique experiences and perspectives. So sometime after, I preached like a big sermon on just that. Guy in the church comes up, said, I've been a Democrat all my life and I'd really like for you to put me in a small group with nothing but Republicans in it. Because I want to see if this works. And those people are going on vacations together these days. Another guy, lifetime career Republican, decided when the George Floyd marches happened downtown that he would go and march. And he said, you know, as a Christian, I've come to the understanding that I don't need to share somebody's politics in order to share and acknowledge their pain. go on with stories like that, but I I think these are two pretty good examples. Um, You know what? There's a lot more in this series about sending people out, and so I will wait and I will close because um, the real centerpiece to today's uh, message is where it leads us every week, and that's to the table of grace, the table of Christ. And I want us to imagine what's not just imaginary, it's actually real. As we approach the table, you know that around the world, there are people from every nation, tribe, tongue, every kind of group that's been mentioned here and more surrounding what we call the Lord's table in different places. We've got four of our own congregations around the city doing it this morning. 830 congregation here at Old Hickory Boulevard as well this morning. People in every nation doing it. So imagine yourself at a weekly holiday feast with the entire body of Christ, and, and, and just think to yourself what, what wonder and what, what privilege to be welcomed into something like this by a brown-skinned Middle Eastern, economically poor, sometimes homeless Jewish man who died early on a Roman cross, never spoke a word of English And yet he saw fit to say to his disciples, I want you to go to the ends of the earth and include them and welcome them in as well. That's Jesus. He's the host of the table and he's also the feast of the table. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your generous welcome. We do not deserve to belong to you and yet, Lord, you would have nothing else but that we belong to you and also to each other. And we thank you that every week we get to approach this table, even as you've already approached us, and to do so relationally, knowing that you're our elder brother, you're also the bridegroom, and we are brothers and sisters to one another, and we are daughters and sons to the Father in heaven. and So this is a family feast, this is a holiday, a holy day meal even greater than a national holiday. We're grateful that we get to participate in this and participate in the great benefits of belonging to Christ. Together we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.